Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. Well, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, you guys like my artwork that I did here? This is, I'm really good at art. Um, really, really good. I did nothing except for place them there. Uh, but uh, altars. This is a very small version of Elijah's altar in 1 Kings 19. Uh, altars in the Old Testament are plentiful. There's lots of them. Um, and this is perhaps the most famous one. Uh, he took what we're told is that he took 12 stones representing the 12, twi- 12 tribes twibes of Israel. And he stacked them up and then he poured water on it because he's a little bit of a show-off. And then he took wood, and he poured water on it. And I only have one log, because I didn't prepare well enough, and it rained, if you didn't, and all of my wood was wet. So I guess that would have been appropriate, but disgusting. So I just went with the dry one. But he put 12, or like a bunch of logs on there, and then he poured water on those, and then he took the thing that they were sacrificing, and he put that on top, and then he poured more water on it. To prove a point, he was going against the um, prophets of a false god. And so he took this altar and he said, I'm going to make it so disgusting that there's no way I would be able to light a fire in it. That the only way that it would happen is if God actually did it. Because the only thing, I don't know, have you ever tried to light a fire, hopefully outside with wet wood? I've done it outside, not inside. That's a bad idea. And all you get is some nasty-looking smoke, usually. You don't get anything really hot. But he prayed, and he asked God to come. And in one of the crazier stories in the Bible, fire comes from heaven. I don't know what that means or looks like, so don't, so don't come to me for that one. I'm just saying what it says. Fire comes from heaven, lights it, and the whole wet thing actually burns true. You know, when we talk about altars, I think this is such a perfect example of the reality of what it looks like for us to build altars, places where we place our sacrifice, where we place the thing that we're bringing to God, because often all that we're bringing is a bunch of wet, soggy wood, right? It's stuff that's not really all that good and worth it for a fire. And then we're saying, God, will you come and burn it all up? Will you come and move. You know, we try to pretend as humans, as Christians, that the altars that we're building are exactly what's necessary in our time and in our space. We try really, really hard. Churches go to a lot of lengths to say that we are creating the thing, the space that people are going to encounter Jesus. And we try, and it's good. But I think, honestly, that there's something beautiful that happens when we as followers of Jesus reach the point where we say, you know what, I have no idea how to actually do this. And I think that Jesus meets us in the midst of that and smiles because he's been waiting for that all along and says, yeah, I know. That's why it's my job, not yours. And he comes and he moves. You know, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit can't be forced It can't be hyped. It's something only God can do. 
We're continuing our series on breakthrough prayer, and this morning I want to talk about building altars. Not giving you a tutorial on how to do it as evidence, but it's right there. But talk about it. Creating places where we are continually asking God to come and to move in our space, in our day, in ways that only He can move. Uh, Greg Johnson, if you're at the men's retreat, not that Greg Johnson, the other one, you know, the one who, who spoke. Uh, there were two of them there, you guys know. Uh, but Greg Johnson, our men's retreat speaker, said that altar building is the human side of revival preparation. It's the act of setting aside space, clearing away other activities in order to call on God and to seek him. An altar is a place where a culture of prayer is built where the primary cry of the heart is, God, we want you here. An altar is a place where a culture of prayer is built, where the main cry is, God, we want you here. It's a place to cry out to God for him to come and to move in our space. In Habakkuk, uh, probably not your most frequently read book of the Bible, but Habakkuk 3.2 says, I have heard all about you, Lord. I'm filled with awe by your amazing works. And in this time of our deep need, help us again as you did in years gone by. In this time of our deep need, help us again. Habakkuk is one of those short books at the end of the Old Testament. It was written in probably the worst period of time that Israel had, and I know that's saying something, especially when we look around us, uh, but it was pretty bad. Uh, it was a time of exile where they had been uh, completely demolished and destroyed by repeated attacks from various different emperors and empires, and most of the Israelites had been taken to a foreign land. The ones that were left were just beat up all the time. It actually wasn't better to be left. It meant that you were kind of fair game because you couldn't have anything to protect you around so you were poor and just open for business in that way it was a terrible time to be an israelite and on top of that it was called by the generations that followed it the silent years because it was a time when god was so distant and silent that it seemed like he wasn't even speaking would you want to live through the silent years as a Christian, that's not a good moniker to get for the era that you live in. But even in the midst of that silence, there were a few that heard God speaking. And it's kind of funny because like the silent years, and yet it takes up like a significant chunk of our, Old Testament, like of our Bible, like the prophets who spoke during that time. There were people like Isaiah and Habakkuk and Malachi. And they heard God speaking in the midst of silence, in the midst of aloneness, as they prayed for God to come and to move and to revive and to break through and to restore. In the midst of nothing, they kept asking for something to happen. You know, I've recently been reading uh, revival histories, and it's been really encouraging just to read about these stories of God moving in different times throughout the history of not just our country, but our world. And to see like the way that like something that starts in one small particular spot spreads to like truly to other parts of the world through nothing 
greater than just prayer and stuff like like it's crazy to see the effect that these moves have. Uh, and I read and learned about a revival that I actually didn't know anything about really before this that happened in what I would call kind of like the silent years of American history. Uh, that was the mid eighteen, mid to late eighteen fifties. It was a pretty terrible time to be an American. Uh, it was just a couple of years before the Civil War. Uh, it was a time of massive injustice, of massive political polarization and differences. Uh, on top of that, their financial system collapsed, uh, and people just didn't like each other. It was not a good time to be an American at, at that point in 1857. In the middle of that, there's this man named Jeremiah Lamphere who became a pastor of a church in lower Manhattan. He was a businessman, and then this struggling church asked him to come and take over their church. Um, unfortunately, he wasn't particularly good at it, um, and the church did not cease to struggle. It continued to struggle. It didn't grow. Um, this is just what it was. <laughs> um, no, no uh, coloring that in a different, different way. Um, and so he kind of like was in desperation. He was like, what do I do when all of the things that I thought I was supposed to do don't work? So he started a prayer meeting. Midweek, middle of the day, uh, at his church in Lower Manhattan, he said, you know who's around at least during the week is a bunch of uh, businessmen. So I'm going to start a prayer meeting for them once a week here at the church. On September 23rd, 1857, he started that prayer meeting, had the first meeting. And guess how many people showed up at 12 o'clock? Zero. <laughs> now, I've ran meetings where nobody shows up. And it is painful. Um, and yet he decided that he was still going to pray. And about 30 minutes through, one person showed up. By the end of the hour, he had six people. Um, if there's something more painful than nobody showing up, it's people showing up when there's only 10 minutes to go. Just a heads up. Like, you know, like it is a little awkward at that point. Uh, but six people showed up the first time. But he decided, like, this is what I'm going to do. So the next week, he kept telling people about it. The next week, 20 people showed up. The week after that, 30 people showed up. Uh, six to seven weeks later on November 5th, over 200 men were showing up every time that they had a prayer meeting to pray and to ask God to move in the midst of their space. Six months later, April 2nd, 1858, there were prayer meetings going on throughout Manhattan every day, and over 10,000 people were gathering to pray every single day, all throughout Manhattan. Now, they didn't have coliseums back then. They didn't have arenas. And so, like, this is like 200 by 200. It would have taken over, like, the entire space to make that sort of a thing happen. 10,000 people every day gathering to pray. With so many people, it could have gone like massively crazy. Um, so these, these folks were very ordered. And these are why the signs are. These are our new rules. These are uh, what they had up. Um, so they would put these up throughout the sanctuary uh, of the buildings where they were meeting. And they would say things like, no controversial points discussed. Which, I mean, 
two years before the Civil War, I think that was actually probably a smart, smart choice. But you're not allowed to talk about anything controversial. Or uh, prayers and exhortations to not exceed five minutes. I personally think five minutes may be a little long, but don't go over five. Like, that's your, that's your stopping point. And on top of that, no more than two consecutive prayers or exhortations per person. Um, so if you prayed for five minutes and then you got really excited and you had a testimony for five minutes right after that, you're done. You can't talk after that point. Like, that's it. That's all you get. Ten minutes per week. There you go. Boom. Uh, What's kind of amazing about that is that, like, that was everybody's rule, including the pastors. And so, like, this was a truly communal prayer meeting that was happening throughout the city. And one leader during that time commented on this, and he said, you know, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached. Another time, Luther did, and then Whitfield and Wesley Great spiritual movements have usually identified with some eloquent voice, which is kind of, anyway, you can, you can tell where that, that if you were the, the speaker, that may not be a compliment. Uh, great spiritual mu- movements have usually identified with some eloquent voice, but no name except the name that is above every name is identified with this meeting. No name except for Jesus can be tied to what's going on. This type of prayer meeting spread. Moved to Boston, Philadelphia, uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, It started to spread through college campuses, uh, particularly in the South. It was growing. Uh, The YMCA was young and was truly a young men's Christian association back then. And it, they started having them in every YMCA throughout the country. These prayer meetings every day were happening all throughout. And when it reached Chicago, the Chicago newspaper, the Daily Press, wrote that writing from a news point, the prominent topic of thought and conversation in Chicago is the religious awakening now in progress. It is all-absorbing. It's on the lips of Christians and unbelievers. There are few or no scoffers, few who sneer publicly and openly at what is transpiring because it's happening without excitement, without noise, and cannot be called fanaticism. It is all absorbing. Can you imagine what that would look like for the news to say that what's going on in the churches is all absorbing? I think the, the spiritual impact of this unique revival is summed up the best for me by a guy named D.L. Moody. Dwight L. Moody was a uh, very famous revival pastor and preacher in the mid to late 1800s. Um, and he was just a young leader at the Chicago YMCA when this happened. And when he was dying in 1899 on his deathbed, He said, I would like before I go to see the whole church quickened as it was in 1857. A wave going from Maine to California that will sweep thousands into the kingdom of God. A guy whose sermons regularly saw hundreds of people come to know Jesus said this was the one that he wanted to go back to and see again. I mean, that's just kind of amazing to think about. 
It was a revival focused on nothing but prayer and inviting Jesus to come and move. What would that look like in our day? Now, I do acknowledge that talking about revival is like one of the churchiest churchy things that I could ever possibly do. And you may be sitting there and saying like, why are we talking about idealized religious gatherings? Like, why is that what we're focusing on? You know, there's, there's uh, bigger things in our world to focus on other than the rainbows and unicorns that you're trying to, to throw out there a little bit. And I get that. I get where that, you know, where that feeling, that rub can come from. So let me, let me say why. If, if I'm being honest, when I look at our world, there is almost nothing that gives me hope. Just to shoot it straight. Our world leaders are, what nice words can I say? Not many. They're very self-absorbed. They're power-grabbing. They're starting wars just because they want more power. They don't really seem to care all that much about the people that they're leading. They're violent, greedy. It's not a pleasant thing when you start to look at world leaders right now. We have a war in the Middle East. We have a war in Europe. Our financial system, both globally and in our country, is wobbly, to say it nicely. Most people in our country are at least borderline depressed and anxious. Honestly, most. The amount of people on medication for depression and anxiety is very, very high. The place that we spend most of our time is built to push us to feelings of jealousy, anger, frustration, polarization, and lust. And that's where we spend most of our time. When I look at our world, I don't see a lot that gives me hope. But when I look at Jesus, I see hope. When I think about Jesus moving in our world, when I think about Jesus coming and bringing peace and ending violence and showing us the real way to lead, when I think about Jesus moving in the lives of my neighbors and bringing joy and love and a sense of community that eradicates the extreme loneliness that so many are going through, when I see Jesus moving in your life and speaking truth in the midst of the lies that you battle with every single day of your life, when I see Jesus coming and moving in my life and revealing where he's actually at and how much he cares about what's going on in my life and the plan that he has, when I look and I see Jesus beginning to move, I actually have hope. Because a move of Jesus isn't rainbows and unicorns. It's solid. And it's something we're stepping onto. It changes things. That's why I want to talk about revival. Because I'm desperate to see Jesus come and move. 
James Chung defines revival this way. He says, revival is a season of breakthrough in word, deed, and power that ushers in a new normal of kingdom experience and fruitfulness. It ushers in a new normal of kingdom experience and fruitfulness. When we look around, do you feel like the, we need a new normal? I know that term, this book was written before that term became that term. So, you know, you can, you know, like throw out that term. Uh, but when you look around, do you feel like we need a new normal? A new normal of fruitfulness and hope instead of death and decay. In the place of hopelessness, being able to say, come Holy Spirit, and expect that something will happen. That's why I want to talk about a move of God in our time. So let's pray, and then we're going to keep digging in. But I want to pray Habakkuk 3-2 over us. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, come. Jesus, we just say that we've heard all about you that we are filled with awe by your amazing works. And in our time of deep need, help us again as you did in years gone by. Will you come and move in whatever way you want to in our world? Come and bring peace. Come and end violence. Come and bring stability. Come and bring life in the midst of death. Will you come and move, Lord Jesus, in our lives and in our world? Thank you, Jesus. Say your answer to that is always yes. Give us faith to actually believe that that's what you're doing to set our eyes on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, I'm talking about building altars, and as I was studying the Old Testament and the prophets, I was just struck by how much they have to teach us about us. And so I want to start in Isaiah. Uh, as he talks about uh, just, he wouldn't say building altars probably, but what he teaches us about this. So look at Isaiah 63 says, Lord, look down from heaven. Look from your holy, glorious home and see us. Where is the passion and the might you used to show on our behalf? Where are your mercy and compassion now? Surely you are still our father. Even if Abraham and Jacob would disown us, Lord, you would still be our father. You are our redeemer from ages past. Lord, why have you allowed us to turn from your path? Why have you given us stubborn hearts so we no longer fear you? Return and help us, for we are your servants, the tribes that are your special possession. I love how this section starts off. Look down from heaven. Isaiah is showing us that like the first thing that we need to do, the most, the, the most central thing is that we need to create altars to have places where we are acknowledging that God is present that he is actually here. He says, look down, come closer. You can tell, he's, like, he's almost like begging. He's like, 
Hey, come on. You see me? I'm still here. He's like, uh, even if nobody else wants to claim me as their kid, you still have to claim me as your kid. Like, I'm still your son, right? Like, I'm still yours. Why don't you come and move right here? Don't forget about me. Come back to us. You know, I grew up in a church that likes to shout. And if you think I'm loud, believe me, uh, it's nothing like it was back then. Uh, you know, like shouting was the liturgical style of the church that I grew up in. Um, you know, kind of like say it loud so God will hear you sort of mentality. I don't know. You ever been to a church like that? Um, we would like march around the sanctuary because like that's what they did in Jericho and you got to bring those walls down. You know, like it was, it was an interactive sort of church. Um, basically, if you weren't sweating, then you didn't actually want God to come and move. Like, that was where you were going with it, right? Um, that, that, was, that was how I grew up. It's true. Um, and, uh, and I was always sweating, so I was ready. I was ready. Um, <laughs> uh, but I'm fine with a little emotion. That's good. The good news is that's not required. Shouting isn't necessary to get God's attention, he, he, it's kind of like, honestly, like if we believe that we got to shout to get God's attention, it's almost like we're assuming that he doesn't hear us or that he's hard of hearing, that he's got hearing aids and we got to make sure that it's loud enough when we get in his face and wave our arms to like get his attention on what, what's going on. Brother Lawrence, who came from a very different liturgical tradition from me in 1600 France, uh, said, you do not need to cry very loud. He's nearer to us than we think. He's nearer to us than we think. Like, that's such good news. You don't got to yell and shout and try and get him to hear you. He's already here. You just got to see him. You got to pay attention to where he's at. Maybe instead of trying to get his attention, we need to ask him to open our eyes so that we can see what it is that he's already up to. But we build altars to say the Holy Spirit is here. He's with us. Look at what Isaiah says as he continues. How briefly your holy people possessed your holy place, and now our enemies have destroyed it. Sometimes it seems as though we never belonged to you, as though we had never been known as your people. Oh, that you would burst from the heavens and come down. How the mountains would quake in your presence. As fire causes wood to burn and water to boil, your coming would make the nations tremble. Then your enemies would learn the reason for your fame. When you came down long ago, you did awesome deeds beyond our expectations, and oh, how the mountains quaked. For since the world began, no ear has heard and no eye has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him. Altars are places of waiting for God to move. Waiting is one of the most action-oriented words that we have as followers of Jesus. Because waiting requires a whole lot of not movement. (laughs) It requires allowing ourselves to choose to wait, to choose to to stay, to choose to pray and to stay in the spot that he has us in. We choose to not take control and to not move ahead. 
We choose to not give up on what God said back then, but to keep holding on to it and saying that we're going to wait until you do it. We choose to remain, even though everybody else around us is moving ahead. In the midst of all that focused and intentional inactivity, we believe that God will move because God moves for those who wait. James Chung says, waiting and seeking God is not passive. Obeying what Jesus has already given us to do will put us in a posture where we're more likely to discern and receive what God has in store. Obeying what Jesus has already given us to do will put us in a posture where we're more likely to see what it is that he's up to. You know, I think that that's a word for some of us. and It may not be the word that you wanted. But I think that's a word for some of us because I think some of us have been a little too willing to start moving. Some of us have been a little too willing to say, God, I'm tired of sitting around while this thing keeps happening. While I still don't know what it is that's going on with my body. While I still am having issues in my marriage. While my kids are still doing these things. While my job still sucks. While life still is hard, I'm tired of waiting around. And so we start to move on. And we walk away. And I think the word to us is, hey, why don't you try pausing? Pause and stay. Give me space to come and to move. Give me space to come and to speak. And watch what happens. And if that's you, if you're in a place where you've said, my God, I'm tired of this. I do want to encourage you this morning, take a moment and say, okay, God, I'll wait. And give him permission to begin to move again in the way that he wants to move. Here's the next thing about altar building. Isaiah 44 says this, but now listen to me, Jacob, my servant, Israel, my chosen one, The Lord who made you and helps you says, Do not be afraid, for I will pour out water to quench your thirst and to irrigate your parched fields. I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your children. And they will thrive like watered grass, like willows on a riverbank. Some will proudly proclaim, I belong to the Lord. Others will say, I'm a descendant of Jacob. Some will write the Lord's name on their hands and will take the name of the Lord, name of Israel, as their own. Here's the next thing that altars are built for. They're often not built for today, but they're built for future moves of God. I know, I'm making you real excited about this, right? But if you think about the prophets, the people who are saying these things, they saw nothing happen in their time. Zero things. They, most of them didn't even get a return. They were stuck in the middle of the junk that they were living in. But they still kept going. They still kept digging in. Their lives are filled with waiting and pain and frustration. But they kept asking for God to move. And God did give them an answer. Do you know what his answer was? Did you catch it there? I will move on your descendants. I'll move on your descendants. And they could have, and maybe I would have replied with a cranky, 
Woohoo! I'm the one praying. I'm the one asking, why do they get it? Why do they get it? And here's the thing that God knew. God knew that they needed time to prepare. They needed to repent. They needed to refocus their eyes on God. Because God didn't neglect them. He just had a longer on-ramp than they did. Do you know what they were preparing for? Do you know what their altar was being built for? The biggest move in the history of humanity. The silent era led to Jesus coming, to God becoming flesh, living among them, answering them in the middle of their pain, saying, it's not enough that I just hear you, but I'm going to come and be with you so that, you can, so that I can be in the middle of it. I care about you enough that I'm going to come and let it all happen to me too. The same way it's happening to you. Their altar had a four to 700 year on-ramp, but it was leading to Jesus. What about us? What if the on-ramp for us is longer than we think? You know, we built altars, we cry out, we say, God, we want you to move in our day. And we do do it with an expectation, with a hope that he's going to come. And we want that. But are we willing to pray for years for God to come and to move in our land for our kids, for our grandkids, for those that are going to come after us? Are we willing to dig in and to create an altar that has actual staying power? Are we willing to cry out so that future generations will proudly proclaim, I belong to the Lord? Are we willing to admit that maybe, just maybe, God's plan is better than ours? That he knows what he's up to. There's a uh, waterfall in the Chestnut Ridge Park in western New York uh, that is called the Eternal Flame Falls. Uh, It is a a tiny little waterfall. Uh, It's not very big. And there's this little enclave. You can see it there. It's about halfway down. Uh, Just a little, like, cave in the middle of it, not very well protected, uh, that has a flame going in it. There's no wood. There's no gasoline. There's nothing except for a crack in the ground that must go really, really deep down. (laughs) I don't know how deep down, but really, really deep down that releases some gas. And the assumption is, because it's been lit for longer than people know, like can remember, that there were uh, indigenous peoples that came across this somehow at some point and lit it, probably accidentally, because I don't know how you would find that on purpose, but they lit it probably accidentally, and that it's kept going for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years since then. Uh, And it goes out from time to time because... It would, but all that's needed to relight it is just a flame. You don't need to throw any other thing on top of it. There's no coaxing or coaching that has to go into it. You just need a match, and it lights immediately in the middle of a waterfall 
where it freezes all winter. That's all that's required. This is a picture of what happens when we build an altar, a place for God's presence to come. We're building where God's already prepared it, where it goes down deep and it has deep roots and it has something that stays, that all you need is a match and it starts back up again. I want us to just watch a video of what this looks like real fast. It's not very long. Uh, and just listen to the water as it goes over this uh, waterfall. What if God asked us to steward that sort of space, constantly connected, ready for him to come? Are we willing to build an altar for God's presence that has staying power? Are we willing to continue bringing the lighter even if it goes out? You know, New England, post-Christian New England in 2023 may feel like a waterfall with a flame going. It's not the ideal spot. But what if we are called to build something that God is going to continue to nurture and grow in light? We want to build altars where we acknowledge our need for God's presence, where we wait for God to move, that are built to last long term, and we want to build altars with a desperation for God to move now, remember what Habakkuk said, I've heard all about you, Lord. I'm filled with awe by your amazing works. In this time of our deep need, help us again as you did in years gone by. You know, we need a, uh, we need a fire for now. And breakthrough prayer requires people who are not going to give up, who are going to keep holding on until either God does something or God says it's time to move on. Will we be those sorts of people? John Wesley, Wesley the founder of the Methodists, he, he said, your praying is not to inform God as though he knew not your wants already, but rather to inform yourselves. It's not so much to move God, who is always more ready to give than you to ask, as to move yourselves that you may be willing and ready to receive the good things that he has prepared for you. What if our prayer, what if creating these sorts of spaces is really about us? It is. So that we can get ready. We don't do it so that God finally remembers. We do it so that we can be transformed and changed and ready. 
we need to be ready for what Jesus has for us.